Greetings from down under in this beautiful city of Sydney. It's really home away from home because that is Elizabeth home and was my home for about 10 years. And so we keep coming back home. God is doing some amazing things through Leading the Way Australia. And the television ministry has grown to be on every corner of this great continent, literally covering every home in Australia. So God is blessing. But that's not what I was here to talk to you about. I'm here to welcome on your behalf a very special and dear friend, Dr. O.S. Hawkins. I cannot describe to you how much I value Dr. O.S. Hawkins. It was 82 when I had the joy and the privilege to be introduced to Dr. O.S. Hawkins, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale. I was 34 years old, and John Haggai introduced us, and Dr. O.S. Hawkins and I chatted briefly, and that was it. We were a National Day of Prayer in the White House, 2001. May 2001. Dr. O.S. Hawkins walked straight to me. He said, Michael, I'm O.S. Hawkins. And I want you to know that from the moment I met you in Fort Lauderdale back in 1982, I have been praying for you every day. And so you imagine the enormous respect, appreciation that I have received from the statement. And throughout the time since 2001 to this day, he's been a source of encouragement to me. He travels all over the United States, talk about the congregation of the Church of the Apostles as one of the most literate congregation, biblically literate congregation he has ever known. And I cannot praise God enough for Dr. O.S. Hawkins. Will you now join me in giving Dr. Hawkins and Susie the warmest welcome that apostles can give anyone. Thank you and God bless. <laughs> your pastor your pastor is given to times of hyperbole sometimes. Uh, but it is a joy and a privilege to be here. Uh, let's open our Bibles to the second book to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. While you're turning, let me just say what it is a privilege to be here. When I left the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, to head up Guidestone, which I've been doing for 21 years now, I've been preaching in a different church uh, all over the country virtually every Sunday. Two weeks ago, I was on the other side of the, of the country, over at Scottsdale Bible Church in uh, in the Phoenix area. Uh, but there's no place I love to come more than uh, this church here because of the integrity of this pulpit and this pastor. And as Michael said, of the biblical literacy of the people of God uh, here at Church of the Apostles. So thank you for the privilege of opening the book of God to the people of God this morning because we know that these words are always a savor of life unto life to all who receive them. Paul writing to the Corinthians and to us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, says, But we will boast, not boast, beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. I want you to think about that phrase. Look at it. To the area of influence God has assigned to us. Did you know that God has assigned a sphere 
an area of influence to you, specifically, purpose. That's why no one has a thumbprint like you, a DNA like you. You're an indescribable, uh, an individual, indescribably valuable to God, and he has assigned a sphere, an area of influence, just you. Somewhere there's someone to be influenced like no one can influence but you. Somewhere there's someone to be reached that no one has the influence to reach like you can because God has assigned that area of influence to you. All of us desire to be have an influence. We, some of us are raising kids in our home. Don't we want to be an influence on them? Some of us are going to go to work tomorrow. We want to be an influence there. It has already been mentioned that school is going to start here before long, and so many people going back to school. We want to be an influence there. Well, God has assigned an area of influence to us to reach even to you. For we uh, are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, here it is again, our area of influence among you might be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Sound like this church and your pastor, without boasting of the work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Have you ever noticed how in our English world today, English-speaking world today, especially here in the Western world, and particularly here in America, we can't communicate with each other unless we do it through acronyms. Uh, they're, they're a part of everything we do when you really think about it. We're talking about school getting started. Some people are going to go to college to earn a BA. Well, a, 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 you're not even going to get in college unless you've got a GP, good GPA, and unless you score well on the SAT, you're never going to get a BA, much less an MA. I'm CEO at Guidestone. We have a COO with an MBA. We have a CFO with a CPA, and we have a CIO that has a CFP. I mean, everything we do is about acronyms. Some of you may be NFL fans here uh, or NBA fans. I'm a baseball fan, so I'm into ERAs and RBIs a lot more than those other things. We're being protected right now by the CIA and the FBI who are having their own problems right now. And April 15th, guess what? IRS comes knocking on your door. I'm here cancer-free today, nine years later, because of a test called a PSA test. Every year I go into Ken Cooper, my doctor, there in Dallas, and get a, a, a test that includes an EKG. Uh, I use the ESV because, for me, the NIV is too eclectic a translation. Uh, we're in a wellness program at Guidestone. I better never find one of our people going into KFC. It's okay to have a BLT every once in a while. And even in social ministry, we can't communicate without acronyms, LOL. They're a part of our life. But I'm convinced there's never been an acronym that's muscled and maneuvered its way into our English vernacular like that one, VIP, very important person. You know, that's the life goal of a lot of people, to be a VIP, to be a very important person. Uh, it, it, it's been going on since before time began, way back there in the eternal counsels of God, way back there before the beginning. There was an angel of light by the name of Lucifer. 
Some think he was in charge of all the praise around the throne of heaven, and yet that VIP uh, syndrome captured him. And you remember what he said? I want to be like the Most High. I want to be important. I want people to notice me. I want to be a VIP. I want that seat up there. I want people to call me. I want to be like the Most High. And, of course, we know he was kicked out of heaven. It started with our first parents in the garden for us. When they saw that the tree was good for, uh, uh, was desired to make one wise, a delight to the eyes. And that VIP syndrome captured them. And, and they did what they shouldn't have done because of it. It started really early for you and me when we took our first steps. And there we were in the living room, and there was this, those, all the family members in that circle. And you know what? We liked the applause. We liked those pats on the back. We liked being the center of attention. And many of us have fought that our entire lives. In fact, some of you didn't go to bed last night until you got on Facebook and see how many people liked what you put on yesterday <laughs> or Instagram or, or Twitter because we are taken up with this VIP syndrome, wanting to become a very important person. But you know what? I'm changing that acronym. I've written a book called this, VIP, to change this acronym, because I don't believe VIP was ever supposed to mean very important person. I believe it's supposed to mean very influential person. Because the world has a way of forgetting those people that deem themselves to be important, but you know what? It has a long memory. We all have a long memory when it comes to those who've influenced our lives. A coach, a teacher, a mom, a dad, a friend, whomever. VIP ought to stand for very influential person. That word influence comes from two words, Latin. In and flow. And the word pictures of this mighty river that's flowing crystal clear with this deep, vibrant current that's flowing. And into this great river flow these little tributaries, little creeks, little streams. Uh, they flow into it, and they, they flow into that river, and they are carried away in its flow. That's where we get the word influence. That, that it ought to be the desire of our lives, especially if God has assigned an area of influence to us. It ought to be the desire of our lives that we live our lives in such a deep and vibrant manner that people who come into contact with us are caught up in our flow. You know, there's an interesting phrase here that would have immediately captured the attention of these Greeks in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter in Koine Greek. Because when they read this phrase that God has assigned an area of influence to, that he's assigned one, they would have immediately you know what it was. It's the same Greek word that is used to describe, and they being knowledgeable of those Grecian Olympic games, it's the same Greek word that, that describes a lane on the track in which you run. Have you ever ran track or have you ever seen a track meet? There are lanes uh, marked out on that track. And, and those runners in the 220, my, my, my daughter Holly, uh, down in when we were grazing our kids in Florida, she ran on a 4 by 100 meter track team. They were fortunate enough to win the Florida State track meet. And I went that year, her, her junior year when they did that, I sat at endless track meets in that South Florida heat for hours waiting for a race that didn't last 50 seconds. 
But when they ran that four by 100 meter relay, they, uh, they, they were assigned a lane in which to run. And you know what? If you are assigned that lane and you're running a race in a, in a relay race or in a sprint or in a, in a district race, sign that race, you can't get out of that lane. You know what happens if you get out of that lane? You're disqualified. You are assigned a lane and you have to run in it. That's the very word that Paul used when he said and reminded each of us that God has assigned a lane for you to run this Christian life. He has assigned an area of influence just for you that no one can reach people like you can reach. And now there are three things we're going to see from this text that tell us how we, too, can capture this, con- this concept of this area of influence God has assigned to us and become such followers of Christ that we live our lives in such a fashion that people get caught up in his flow through us when we run in that lane he's assigned to us. Because there are three things about a person of influence. And I'll be honest with you, he's not here today, so I'll say this. These are the three things that make Michael Yusuf and this church different from most other churches I know. Because people of influence are characterized by three things. First of all, they know where they're going. They don't have to, when they get to an intersection, they don't have to stand there and scratch their head and say, well, which way we're going to turn. They already know where they're going. They're people of vision. They know where they're going. Secondly, they know who they are. They're not always trying to be somebody that they're not, like a lot of people in this world are trying to be. They know who they are. They, uh, they know where they're going. They know who they are. And thirdly, they know why they're here. They're moved and motivated by this inner purpose and passion that drives them in life. So the first thing I want to say about you becoming and me becoming a VIP, a very influential person, is that people of influence are people VIP, first of all, V, they're people of vision. They know where they're going. They're people of vision. That's what Paul is saying here. I said, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Talk about a person of vision. He, he wanted this area of influence God had given him to be greatly enlarged. He, he, people who influence others are people who know where they're going. They are people a vision. You know what a vision will do for your life or your church or your business? It, 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 will, it brings definition. It defines who you are. It defines your task. A second thing it'll do, it'll bring direction. When you have a vision for where God wants you to go, uh, it brings direction to your life. You, as I said, you don't have to wait till you get to an intersection and say, well, which way am I going to turn? You already know which way you're going to turn before you get there because a, a vision will do that for you. It helps you know where you're going. It, def- it brings definition. It brings, it brings direction. It brings dynamic. You know, Without a vision, there's no dynamic to life. But when you've got a vision of not who you are right now, but of what God wants you to be and where he wants you to go, it brings a dynamic to your life. And your vision ought to be so big that, that fourthly, it, it brings a dependence, a fresh dependence upon God that if he doesn't come through, you're sunk. You know, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, said this in Proverbs 29, where there's no vision... The people, what? Perish. They go back. 
where there's no vision, where there's no spirit of conquest, where, where you don't know where you're going, the people go back. And parenthetically, that's a very interesting Hebrew word. It's translated in the book of Exodus, the same Hebrew word, uh, as go back. For example, the children of Israel had come out of the Egyptian bondage, and they were in the wilderness, but they began to murmur with Moses. Remember, they said, we want to go back to Egypt. Same Hebrew word as perish. It's also used in the Old Testament to describe a man one time who was unkept. His hair was matted. He was unshaven. He was filthy. He was unkept. Uh, where there's no spirit of conquest, where there's no vision, uh, people, people don't know where they're going. They want to go back. They're, they're unkept at life. You know, vision is, is vital. I, a couple of years ago, I preached commencement at uh, Liberty University down in Virginia. Jerry Falwell is one of my dearest friends. He's been dead now almost 10 years. And I had not been back on the campus since Jerry Falwell died. And Jerry Jr. was walking me across the campus a year or so ago before that commencement. So I, I couldn't believe it. There's a, there's a law school down here in the valley. There's a medical school up on the hill. There's uh, dorms that look like Four Seasons or Fritz Carlton Hotels. There, there's a library that's robotic. A kid has an app on his, on his phone. He wants a book. He just puts it on that app. By the time he gets to the library, the robot has gone down the aisle, picked up the book, and it's waiting for him at the desk. Science, but everything. It's unbelievable. And walking across that campus, I was about to say, I wish your dad, I wish Jerry Falwell, my old buddy, could see this campus now, and it dawned on me. He did see it, and that's why it was there. He saw it when nobody saw it. He saw it when he started Liberty University in three rooms in the education building of the Thomas Road Baptist Church back in the early 70s, and when he went all over this country talking about a university that was going to be to evangelical Christians what Notre Dame was to Catholics and Brigham Young was to Mormons. That's vision. He saw it when nobody else had really seen it. You know, the, a coach has a game plan before the game. He's got a vision of what plays they're going to run, what he wants to do before the game. An artist, before that artist, before she ever goes to the canvas, she has a vision of what that painting is going to look like before she ever places the first stroke there. Vision is vital. So if you're going to be a person of influence, you've got to know where you're going. You've got to be a person of vision. You say, well, how do you get a vision? How do you get a vision? You know, it's like the birth of a baby, almost exactly. Where does that begin? It begins with conception. When the seed of a man and the egg of a woman come together, and those tiny, uns that tiny unseen speck of protoplasm, unseen to the, to the eye, all the intricacies of a nervous system and a circulatory system and a respiratory system and a digestive system, all there, in conception. That's the way it begins when God gives a vision to a man or a woman. It begins alone with him. When the seed of God, what, what he wants you to be, where he wants you to go, is planted in your heart and takes root there and is conceived there. And all that's in that little speck of protoplasm is planted in your heart and mind. And then what's the next stage in birth? Gestation. You know, we, we have two daughters, and uh, when Susie was pregnant with, uh, with our first daughter, we didn't tell anybody for a while, and then after several weeks, she started to show. Somebody, we could, she could see something was growing in her. 
Gestation is a vital step in the birth of a vision. And you know why some people have visions and they never come to any fruition? It's because they're stillborn, because they don't gestate them long enough. When God puts a seed of what he wants you to be, there's a time of gestation. There's a time to live with it, to meditate on it, to think about it, to pray about it, to live with it. And you know it won't be long till after that people are in your office or people at school or people at church or people in your home. You know what? They're going to say, something's happening with him. Something's growing in her. There's something going on there. And you take time to gestate that vision of what God wants you to be. And then comes the third step. Birth. And we, we're excited. We're happy. We hand out the cigars. Well, if you're Baptist, you don't hand out cigars, you know. You know. But, but you celebrate the birth of the baby. It's out there. And, and that's the way it is with the vision. You get it out there. Then comes the fourth step. It's the most important step of all. And incidentally, it's one of the most beautiful words in the English language. Adoption. That's when somebody who's never personally conceived or gestated or birthed that baby adopts that baby, takes it by all legal rights, it's theirs. That baby takes their name, comes into their home, and it's theirs. That's the secret of a vision. When people begin to adopt that vision that God has given you, and they take it like it's their very own. That's what happens on athletic teams. That's what happens in growing businesses. That's what happens in growing churches and ministries that that end up all over the world because people begin, like this ministry, to adopt it as their own. It's as easy as ABC to get people to adopt a vision. Just make sure you got your ABCs there. A, is it achievable? B, is it believable? C, is it conceivable? If somebody's going to adopt your vision, it's got to be conceivable. You got to put it out there where they can conceive it. I can see this. I can see it. It's got to be believable. You know, you come some vision out there says, we're going to, we're going to get everybody on this planet, uh, to give to the Church of the Apostles and all its ministries. Well, that ain't believable. You're not going to do that. Is it achievable? Is it believable? Is it achievable? Can we really get it done? Then comes the next step in a vision. You know what it is? Growth. You ever raise kids? It costs money. It costs time. It costs everything when they're growing. They run out. They, they, they grow out of their shoes. They grow out of their jeans. They need money to go to camp. They need fees for school. They need this. They need that. Time. It costs your most valuable commodity, your time. You got to sit out there as those track meets all those times. My dad never made $10,000 a year in his life. He worked for the city of Fort Worth all of his life. They were in their 40s when they were born. They didn't think I could. But you know what? I never played in the ball game. My daddy wasn't in the stands. He was always there. He gave me his time. Uh, that's what happens when you're growing a kid. It, it, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes money. And when you're growing a vision, like the vision of this church and this pastor, it takes energy. It takes time. It takes money. And then comes the next stage, maturity. What a dangerous stage that maturity is. When, when everything you've dreamed about and planned about comes to fruition, for me, those two daughters I talked about that we conceived and gestated and birthed and, and grew and when I walked them down the aisle, put their hand in the hand of that boy that won their heart, one of those daughters, I remember the thought coming down that aisle. I said, I'm about to put a Stradivarius in the hand of a gorilla. That's the way I felt about it. <laughs> but I had to do it. And 21 years later, I'm glad I did. He's such a great guy. 
But maturity, you know there are churches everywhere, they're all over your city and my city that used to dream, used to have visions, and they all reached their maturity, and that was it. And there's one more stage. It's reproduction. I got grandkids now. It's when those visions you had, those kids you had, begin to reproduce themselves. When, when you begin to reproduce yourself into other visions around you and greater visions, like Paul said in our text, that our, that our influence might be greatly enlarged. Listen, people don't give themselves to needs. They give themselves to visions. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. So you want to be a person of influence? V. V is for vision. Know where you're going. I, VIP, you want to be a VIP, a very influential person? I tell you what, I th- I, I'm convinced that I is for integrity. Paul said, we're the first to come to you with a gospel of Christ. He, had, he kept integrity in the message of the gospel. I is for integrity. Somebody says, no, you know what? I think that I ought to stand for intellect because knowledge is power. And if you're really going to influence other people, then you've got to have more knowledge. You've got to, you got to have, you, you know, knowledge is power. That's how you be influential. Somebody says, no, it's intensity. It's passion. It's the ability to woo crowds and, 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 and sway people to your persuasions. I've been around this track a lot of years now, and I want to tell you something. I've known people that started out back in those early days Michael was talking about, had a lot more intellect than I did, but ended up they didn't have any integrity, and they're not in the race anymore. I've known people that had an incredible amount of intensity and passion. Boy, they were so persuasive in their ability to present the gospel and other things, but they didn't have any integrity and hadn't heard from them in years. Integrity is your most vital commodity if you're going to be a person of influence. Integrity. It's vital to who we are and what we are because it's not, people of influence don't just know where they're going, they know who they are. Do you know you live in four worlds? You live in a private world. Do you know who goes into your private world? Nobody. Your wife sitting by your side, your husband sitting by your side. They don't know all your private thoughts. Nobody lives in your private world except you and God who knows your anxious thoughts, searches your heart. And secondly, you have a personal world you live in. And in that personal world, that's the close, dynamic, interpersonal relationship of a few people, a husband, a wife, a few kids, a mom and dad. And if you're fortunate in life, maybe one, two, maybe three people, outside your immediate family, who live in your personal world, who know you like you really are. Thirdly, you have a professional world. That's a world you live in where people don't know you privately or personally, but they know you professionally. For some of us, that's dozens, scores, hundreds, some of us. People that we deal with in the professional setting out there when we see them, and they know us, and we know them professionally. We'll see them tomorrow at work. And then there's one other world in which you live, and that's your public world. That's that world you live in where, where somebody hears your name, and even though they don't even know you professionally, they, they, they maybe have formed an opinion about you for one way or the other. So we, it bodes the question, where is integrity rooted? Do you know that some people actually think that integrity is rooted in the public world? And so they do everything they can to spin their public image and brand themselves, to try to be something that most often they're not. 
so that people might have an image of them out there uh, in, a, in the public persona of who they are. But, but integrity is not rooted in the public world. It's only revealed there, ultimately. Whether you have it or not, it'll be revealed publicly. So you say, well, it must be rooted in the professional world. We're out there tomorrow on the anvil of personal experience. We beat out those principles. It's not rooted there. It's only reinforced there. If you have integrity, it's going to be reinforced tomorrow when you go to work and what you do in the professional setting. You say, well, then it's in that dynamic relationship, those personal relationships. No, it's not. It's only reflected there. If you want to know if I have integrity, ask my wife or my kids. Integrity is rooted in that private world, alone with God. And you know what happens when you root it there? You become a person of influence because it begins to be reflected in your personal world. It begins to be reinforced in your professional world. And God begins to increase your area of influence until it's revealed in your public world. You ever heard building? Y'all have as much building going on or more here in Atlanta than we do in Dallas. It's unbelievable. You ever heard a building contractor or architect or, or builder? Look at a big one of these big high skyscraper buildings glistening in the sun with all the glass and steel and say this, that building has structural integrity. You ever heard that phrase? What does that mean? It means that building, even though it, those 40 stories you see standing there in all its beauty, they stand there because it has structural integrity. It has a hidden life down below the ground, deep into the bedrock. Thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of concrete and steel and everything that you can't see is there. And that building rests on that solid foundation of its hidden life. And so it is with you and me. And if we're going to be people of influence, we, we not only have to know where we're going, we've got to know who we are. Vision, integrity, and one final word, and I'm through. P. You want to be a VIP, a very influential person? P is for purpose. Because people of influence don't just know where they're going, who they are. They know why they're here. They're moved and motivated by an internal purpose. Somewhere there's something to do that no one can do like you can do because no one has a DNA like you. And God has assigned a lane for you to run the life in. He's assigned an area of influence just for you. That's your purpose. Be moved and motivated by that purpose. When we moved our daughter into the freshman dorm at TCU, we were still living in Fort Lauderdale at the time before we'd moved to Dallas and TCU's in Fort Worth. We, we were out there 1,400 miles, and I am not a handyman, okay? I'm, 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 I don't know a preacher that is, you know. We got calluses on our hands, but they're from golf clubs. They're not from work, uh, tools, okay? But we go out there to move her in the freshman dorm, and Susie's getting all the things going, and th- there was one pedestal sta- table. It had a, had a round top on it, just one big pedestal that went in, and four screws you put around it, just a little end table. And that was my job. She handed me to get that job. Well, I took it out, and I saw all the four screws. I put it down there, and there was holes already drilled there to put them in. I put that screw there. And then I, I went in the kitchen, got a kitchen knife out of the kitchen, and went in there. It was those Phillips screwdrivers, you know, those had little crosses on the screws. 
golly, that knife would, it just, the end of it started getting bent. My hand slipped off and scratched my knuckle a couple of times. My wife, Susie, comes by a few minutes later. And she looks at me. And she didn't say it, but the look was, you stupid idiot. And she picked out of her little toolbox and flipped me a Phillips screwdriver. And I put that screwdriver in that Phillips screw. It felt so good. And I turned it. Oh, it turned so good. And I tightened it down, and it, it felt so good. Why? That was its purpose. It was doing what it was meant to do. Somewhere there's somebody to reach. No one can reach like you. There's a lane. There's an area of influence for you that's not for anyone else. And when you're fulfilling that purpose, you'll be well on your way to becoming a person of tremendous influence. Greatest epitaph I've ever heard is what Paul said of of, uh, King David in his first recorded sermon at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, when he said in Acts 13, 36, David served God's purpose in his own generation and fell asleep. Just a euphemism means he dropped dead. David served God's purpose. And he's, I don't know about you, but I, I want that said of me, that I finished strong, that I served God's purpose for my life in that lane of uh, that area of influence God gave me to run in, that I served his purpose and fell asleep. You know, I, I, uh, I'm going to close with you. I, I, like play, I do play golf, play a lot of golf, more than I should. I like golf. And you know what my favorite holes are? The par threes. You know why? It only takes one good shot to make par on a par three. Think about it. You get up on a par three and, and, and you, you hit the ball way up there on the green and it, it comes right up there close to the pin and then you, you miss that little sharp putt. You just have to have, but you've hit that one good shot. It only takes one to make. You dribble the ball off the tee. And then you hit a great second shot right up there next to the pin. You tap it in. You got a par three. Maybe you hook the ball off the tee. You slice it into the woods. Then you hit a second shot, barely gets on the green. But then you make a 40-foot winding putt and it falls in. It only takes one good shot to make par on a par three. But I want to tell you something and take this with you. That is not the way it is with influence. It takes all three. I've known people of great vision who didn't have any integrity and didn't influence anyone. I know, I've known people of impeccable integrity but didn't know where they were going, had no vision, had no purpose in life, and, and didn't influence anyone. I've known people moved and motivated by purpose but, but didn't have a vision of where God wanted them to go and what they wanted to do and didn't have any integrity. It takes all three if we're going to be people of influence. The great, we're here today because of Jesus of Nazareth. People are gathered all over the world opening his book today, hearing his message today. Talk about a person of influence. 2,000 years later, 8,000 miles removed, and here we are. What made him so influential? He was a person of vision. He got a bunch of ragtag, callous-handed, quasi-literate Galilean fishermen and didn't challenge him to go over there to the 
to the uh, uh, local locals down in Tiberias or Capernaum. You remember what he said? Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go to every nation in this world. Talk about a visionary. And they did. Integrity. He preached the world's greatest sermons. And unlike all the rest of us, he practiced every single thing he preached. Purpose. Oh, hear him up at Sychar. My meat, the thing that sustains me, is what? To do the will of him who sent me while there's yet time. Hear him neath those trees in Gethsemane's garden. Not my will. But yours be done, moved and motivated by that driving purpose in life to do the will of God. Some of you here today, anytime we gather in a crowd this size, you don't know where you're going. You're not you're just existing. You're not living the life God's called you to live. You don't have any idea. He said, I'll make known to you the path of life. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Some of you don't know who you are. Living your life and don't even know who you are. That there's this God-shaped vacuum in your life you've tried to fill with things. And you don't realize that the something you think you need is really someone. His sweet name is Jesus. Some of you here don't know why you're here. It's to know him. Whom to know is life, eternal and abundant. No wonder Paul said, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Be a person of influence. So that be a person of vision, integrity, purpose. And you know what will happen? Others will get caught up in your flow for God's glory. Father, we love you today. We pray you'd seal these words in our hearts. And for those today that don't know where they're going or who they are, why they're here, that you might move upon their heart in mighty convicting power, that they might come to you, realizing that as you call us to yourself, you've assigned an area of influence just to us. We love you, Lord. We pray for this church and this pastor. Seal these words in our heart. May we act upon them as we go from this place is our prayer for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.